Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. Today, I am happy to welcome Wayne Tourette, RA, Lead Green Associate, Principal and Founder of the Tourette Collaborative, or TTC in New York City. Wayne leads a creative team with a design vision that has defined his work for nearly four decades. He plays an active role in all TTC design assignments and supervises the firm's general operations. Engagement with the city and with his neighbors is a hallmark of his design work. Wayne started TTC in 1991 as a truly collaborative enterprise, a multidisciplinary office including architecture and interior design, graphics, custom product design, and furniture design. Early designs for corporate interiors and retail environments were widely published, garnering critical praise for their inventive and playful use of materials. Subsequent projects have included restaurants, residences, institutional spaces, churches, industrial designs, furnishings, and others. Wayne has degrees in architecture from the University of Illinois and Pratt Institute and studied for a year at UP3 in Versailles, France. He is a member of NCARB and is licensed to practice architecture in New York. He can also work in New Jersey and Connecticut. As a recognized architect and designer, Wayne has served as a design critic at the City College of New York, New Jersey Institute for Technology, Parsons, and Pratt Institutes. He has taught at New Jersey Institute of Technology, Parsons, and the Fashion Institute of Technology. Wayne has also lectured at the Plan Architectural Conference, various other industry conferences, and at the Institute of Culinary Education. 
The project we are going to talk about today is the Passive House in Greenport, New York. After three years of researching, sketching, and planning, Wayne decided to embark upon the mission of creating and living in a passive home. His dream was realized as a highly energy-efficient home that fuses his modern aesthetic with an historic barn exterior, more in keeping with the village of Greenport, New York, on the North Fork of Long Island. Recognized as one of the best paths to net zero, Passive House refers to a set of standards for energy efficiency that certifies a building's ability to maintain comfortable temperatures year-round, requiring minimal energy and expenditure for heating or air conditioning. You can see additional project details on the podcast homepage at rcat.com slash podcast. Wayne, welcome to Detailed. How are you today? Good, good. How are you, Cherise? I am I am good. I'm super excited that you're here to talk about this project today. This project, your house, this project. Um, I have a pretty good size set of listeners who are really super excited about anything to do with sustainability or passive house. For those who might not be familiar, what exactly is a passive house? Okay, that's a good question. Isn't it a funny name? <laughs> Total. I've, I've never understood it at all where that came from. So the way I explain passive house is you know, it's not a house that, you know, won't talk back to you. You know, it's, <laughs> it's passive because a part of its formula is getting energy from the sun or heat from the sun passively. That's why I think they called it passive house or in Germany, passive house. But there are a number of principles to make a passive house. But essentially, the idea of a passive house is that it's very, very energy efficient. So how does it become energy efficient? It has a lot of insulation. That's obvious. It's sited to the south, so you get a lot of passive heat in the winter. But why only in the winter? Well, because usually you design um, overhangs to prevent the high sun, which is in the summer, from entering the house. But in the winter, the sun azimuth is lower, the arc is lower, so the sun can actually get underneath that overhang and into the house. The third thing is um, that the envelope of the house needs to be incredibly sealed. Now, what I mean by sealed is that in an old house, the old windows and the way it was built, when the wind blew, you got some air coming in from the cracks, right? right? So it was permeable. But in a passive house, you don't want that at all. And in New York State, the criteria for air changes in New York State, I think, is three air changes per hour at 50 pascals of pressure. So that's three air changes per hour of the whole house. And in passive house, it's 0.6. Oh, wow. So that's a big difference. What that does is it keeps the heat in, right? It keeps the cold from coming in. It keeps the heat in or it keeps the hot from coming in and keeps the air conditioning in. But the other thing that you need if you're going to seal up the house, because you know I'm old enough to remember sick building syndrome, where you sealed up a building so tight that none of the air got circulated and all the furniture you had inside and everything like that outgassed and it was not a good environment. So the energy recovery ventilation system 
needs to be employed in a passive house because it's so sealed up. And what the ERV or the energy recovery ventilation is, is essentially two streams of air, one an exhaust stream that pushes the air from inside the house to the outside, and an incoming stream, which is the outside air coming into the house. And if you just did that with two fans, it would be incredibly inefficient. Think of the wintertime, your house is warm and you paid to heat that house, and now you have a fan just exhausting the house out to the outside and new cold air is coming in that you have to heat again. So what the ERV does is it allows the two streams to pass each other but not intermingle, and it allows the outgoing air to exchange or move its energy over to the incoming air. And in some cases, it's a 90% or better. So that's pretty good. You're still losing some heat, for instance, but not a lot. So you need to have an ERV. And there's all sorts of types, types that allow you to supply fresh air into all the habitable rooms of the house while it's exhausting all the air out of the bathrooms and the kitchen. And it's a balanced system usually, and whatever air is going out is air coming in. And it usually runs constantly. There's two other things. There's something called thermal bridging, which is basically in a 1980s house, the studs were next to the exterior sheathing, next to the shingles or whatever was built. And the cold would conduct itself through those studs into the room through the sheetrock. And if you did an infrared camera in each room that had an exterior wall, you'd see the cold coming in every 16 inches. Turns out that that actually happens to be a large quantity. And so you want to, you want to slow that down or prevent it. So continuous exterior insulation is what's needed. And the last thing, at least in climates like in the Northeast, the last thing is that thermal pane windows, double pane windows aren't quite enough. And so we use triple glazed windows for our passive houses. So this is your home. What made you decide to take on designing a passive home? Tell me a little bit about that. In a way, the path started in the 70s. You know, I was part of ADPSR and I protested back in the 70s about energy and all that stuff. So there was a, there was a little bit of a flame ignited. And I had clients over the years that were very, very forward thinking. One of them I can remember was Tommy Boy Records, a guy named Tom Silverman, who introduced me to Rocky Mountain Institute. And we started sourcing materials that didn't outgas and things like that. And I don't know if you remember, there was a book called The Whole Earth Catalog. It was kind of the internet in paper. <laughs> and he sourced all sorts of things. And so my, you know, the idea in the 70s of saving energy and all that stuff was everything under the sun. But none of it really looked elegant. But what triggered me to the passive house, what got me there, was I visited a friend an architect friend in Berlin who designed his passive house. And so my idea when I was going to visit this passive house was, oh, it was probably going to be kind of like a bunker with small windows and, you know, very, very thick walls. And it was going to be, okay, I could deal with a night there. But instead, it turned out to be an amazing house 
very contemporary, very modern, with amazing amount of glazing. And I thought to myself, how's that? But it really opened my eyes and it made me very curious. And then it just so happened in this village of Greenport, which is near the end of Long Island, near Orient Point, we had a small little bungalow and I was walking down the street and I saw this sign and there was a lot for sale and there was a dock to this lot and I am a sailor and that just hooked me. And so I had this narrow site, long narrow site. Most of the brokers, real estate people thought, you're crazy, this isn't a great site, but I needed to do it. So I designed this house and I hired a passive house consultant because the formula, although passive house, the principles are very simple, the formula is very German complicated. <laughs> and um, just to get into the weeds of those formulas, it's like they take into account, you know, if your window is recessed four inches into the wall, well, what does the shadow do at all times of the day to that heat gain? There's a lot of calculation. And uh, so he helped guide me. But the idea of doing Passive House was my curiosity and also the fact that I thought this was a really good way of helping to create a more sustainable environment. If you can build energy efficiency into your buildings, then you can help, and I don't want to sound trite, but you could help save the earth. Um, and so anyway, I also wanted to be able to experience it before I was to kind of suggest it to a client. Right. So tell me some details because, you know, I was checking out this house and I'm like, I expected it to be look different than it does. I mean, I know we've come a long way in those old little windows and thick, super thick walls. Um, it's a beautiful house. So tell me some details. So the one thing you have to understand is that I like to think of myself as a contemporary architect. And so my first idea for the house was, you know, two different flat cube type uh, forms intersecting with each other. And then I found out I'm in the historic district. That's why it looks like a sort of farmhouse, but I secretly conspired to make it contemporary by taking off all the trim and making it incredibly sparse. So it's very minimal on the outside, even though its form is conforming to what the historic district would want. And then the whole thing was really an education for me. Everything from finding contractors, and then I ended up becoming my own construction manager because it was difficult to find contractors out there that would even listen to this stuff because it sounds to them like this is kind of heresy <laughs> because they're used to building the way they're used to building. And so it's difficult to actually get them to do things differently. For one, just like engineers, it's diff difficult to get them to get off their ASHRAE charts and think about how efficient the building could be so you can actually reduce the amount of mechanical equipment but they're afraid of getting sued, so then they go back to over-designing. But the same thing with these uh, contractors out there. But the way we designed it was kind of simple in a way. It's basically a regular wood frame building. The difference is that I created a airtight envelope around the exterior of that framing. 
And I did it with a product called Zip Sheathing. It's a composite board that has a, an air barrier exterior. So it's, it's your sheathing, like you'd normally sheath a house. The difference is, is that all the seams get taped with special tape. And then to prevent thermal bridging, the exterior of that is uh, four inches of polyisocyanate. And then on top of that, then there was furring. And on top of that was my siding, which is shiplap siding. And then another part of the house is cement board. So <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I didn't really account for was that going through four inches of polyiso, three quarters of an inch of the sheathing, an inch and a quarter of the furring, I needed incredibly long structural screws. But what I didn't account for was the incredible cost of those screws. And there's so many of them. So keep that in mind. <laughs> and then if you go on the inside of that sheathing, then I have two by six studs and I have unfaced fiberglass insulation and then she rock. And the idea of that is that if by any chance the dew point ends up inside that wall, at least the fiberglass will allow it to dry out through the sheetrock. It's not faced. But there should not be any condensation inside the wall. And the roof also had six inches of polyiso, and it has a metal roof. The windows were uh, triple glazed from actually Poland. It was hard then. It's a little easier now to find American triple glazed. But this is a company called Bildau Busman. So the house is oriented to the south mostly, and it has some large glazing areas facing south underneath the overhang. It has a couple of windows that aren't in an overhang, and so there's a lot of heat gain from those, both in summer and winter. But the house is incredibly tight. The one thing that I found out about passive house and triple glazed windows is that it is so quiet. You don't hear cars on the street, and you hear things that you probably wouldn't normally hear, like the hum of a fan going slow. <laughs> and so if you're annoyed by all these little noises, uh, be prepared, because your house is incredibly quiet. But it's been great. It's been terrific. The house has all LED lighting. And what I find kind of that gives me a lot of pleasure are the floors. I used a, a heart pine and I used a, a woke oil with white pigment. And they're just beautiful. How big is this house? It's uh, with the, there's a single car garage. It's like 2,400 square feet. Yeah. So it's not tiny, but the garage takes up a fair amount and the bedrooms and baths. It's a, not a McMansion. It's a mo fairly modest. It's not tiny. And what I did is that because I have views to the water, I sort of flipped the house upside down. So the living room is upstairs, and the dining room and the kitchen are sort of one big great room. And the nice thing about that is that you can actually then take the ceiling off and open the living room and dining room up to the peak of the roof. So you get a kind of what they call cathedral ceiling. Did you have to, like, get out of the box and and find more unique products in order to achieve what you wanted to achieve? And was it more expensive to do what you wanted to do and to build a passive house than if you just would have 
built the house? Yeah, it was a little different. I think like in a place like Germany and a place like Belgium, Belgium, every building has to be passive. You go to their lumber yards and their, their hardware stores and you find all the things you need to make a passive house. In America, it's not exactly the case. But the way we designed this house was to make it simple and to make it so that it's not so out of the ordinary in terms of building it. You just have to pay attention to the details. And in terms of whether it costs more, because I was my own construction manager, in general, it costs less than if I had a GC doing everything. But if I did have a GC doing everything, it would cost more, I believe. But what I tell people all the time is that there's a trade-off. There is a, not quite an equilibrium, but if you build to passive house standards, the amount of air conditioning and heating you need is less. And therefore, you don't have to over-design your heat pump. You could under-design it almost. So you're saving money in mechanical equipment. You're spending money in extra insulation and manpower. So how, how is the energy efficiency in the house? You're, you're in and living there now. Yeah, yeah. So all the energy I use is electric. So I have some comparison. So in August, my energy bill out there was $95. And that was using air conditioning, heat pump hot water heater, heat pump dryer, induction cooktop, electric ovens. And I have an electric car and I charged the car there. $95 for everything? Yes. I want a passive house. <laughs> and then, I don't even tell you how much my energy bills are every month. And then in the city, granted, the electrical cost, instead of $0.13 cents a kilowatt hour, is $0.25. Cents, so it's double. Right. I have a place in the city that's almost the size of the house, like 2,200 square feet. And... I use gas and electric. So if you combine my energy for that same month, it was $500. Wow. Yeah. If, if that isn't a huge lesson learned right there. Uh, during the course of this project, either design or construction, were there any surprises or challenges that came up in the course of that that caused you to change direction? There were some issues like, basically, like I said, I wanted to strip off all the extraneous uh, trim. And so I have a shiplap siding, horizontal shiplap siding, and at the corner where you'd normally have a corner board right. to, to hide where they get together, I wanted them mitered. And that's not easy to do. And, you know, there was the question, are these boards going to warp? And, you know, are they going to pop? They're going to... So far, I have to say that I'm pleasantly surprised you know, uh, I'm an architect first, right? So I wanted the look uh, that I wanted. No, really? <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I heard the contractor. He said, glue and screw is not going to work, well, but I had to have the look. So that's why we did it. And um, it's held together pretty well. That's, you know, it's funny. I have a number of friends who are I have a, actually a couple of really close friends. They're a married couple, and they both went to architecture school. And they both work for general contractors now. Uh -huh. But they've joked a number of times and, and they get away with it because 
they're half and half people, architect and construction, but they're like the worst client in the world for a contractor is an architect. Right. Just like you do not ever want to work for an architect because they're never happy. And they're always going to have some crazy idea. (laughs) Were you an easy person to work for? Yeah, I'm pretty easy to work for. You know, I'm not my way or the highway, usually. I'm usually, because I was a builder myself, I know how difficult some of this stuff is. And I really look to the craftsmen for most of, like I try to work with them in terms of what they're telling me. Because I feel that people in the trenches kind of know a lot. And yeah, I know what it looks like on paper. But to actually build this stuff, you really have to take some advice from the people that actually build it. So that's my philosophy. It's not my way or the highway. And also, I mean, my philosophy when it comes to sustainability is sort of similar in the sense that if there are people out there that want to build a more sustainable house or have a house that they want to make more energy efficient, I say do what you can. You know, you don't have to have the perfect be the enemy of the good. You don't have to go full passive house. If you could only replace windows, replace windows. It's better to do something than nothing is my philosophy. Well, exactly. And every little bit in anything helps. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to tomorrow go do another project just like this again, Mm -hmm. what would you do different right out of the shoot next time? Well, what I do different right out of the, the gate would be that I would assemble a team beforehand. The contractor, the HVAC contractor, the HVAC engineer, Structural, I would start from the beginning as we're all a team and here are our goals. And these are the goals we're going to meet. Here's a preliminary design. Let's all talk about it. That's what I would do from the beginning. I would set up a team that that knows the stuff, wants to do it, and can help make it go. And some that may mean that I have to hire somebody that is a sort of representative on site sort of the architect I'm talking about sitting on site, but insurance companies don't want you to be part of the building as an architect. So more of an integrated project delivery process. Right. As opposed to the old kind of standard design bid build. Yeah. So was there anything about this project that will influence your actions going forward, not just in your own personal things that you're building, but in your career going forward? Well, I mean, the obvious is, you know, we're now doing more and more emphasis on energy sustainability in all the projects we do. So, I mean, I don't know if it's this house or just cumulative over time, but one of my pet peeves about the whole situation is the amount of construction waste on construction sites. I think that that's that's like a low-hanging fruit for, you know, making things more sustainable, thinking about what to do with that waste, how to sort that waste within a construction site. Right now, everything goes into a dumpster, you know, and it doesn't get sorted and you can't, you know, can't just send the wood somewhere and you can't separate, but it's so easy to do. So in a way that sort of changed me because I could see that more clearly on this house because I was part of the building of it. And it's just, it's sort of wasteful. Anything that you would like to tell me about this house that we should, that everybody should know? Well, 
I guess my closing is the sense that it's been terrific. Actually, it's, it exceeded all of my expectations in terms of comfort, fresh air inside the house, the quietness, the sun streaming in, and the way it looks. The only thing I regret is that I still haven't designed the stair coming down from the upstairs porch. I sort of ran out of money. So it's a temporary stair. If you look in the photos, you'll see what I mean. But otherwise, you know, in terms of uh, this being sort of an experiment, it's to me been incredibly successful. It sounds like it has. I'd stay in that house easy. <laughs> you got, so you have a boat out there now? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So come on out and tell me when you're coming. You, you don't know who you're talking to. You never should have said <laughs> that to me. It's be like Nick's. Okay, I'm coming out. You got the boat ready. Um, just broadly, what areas in our industry in AEC where you think we repeatedly fail? I like to call it my what drives you crazy at work question. So I think we have room to improve in terms of the cradle to cradle idea, which is all of the waste and finding places for that. I think we have room to improve in terms of and you'll know this more as a spec writer, but I find that the documentation required now is very, very elaborate. Right. And especially now we work in Revit. So I would just like to try to find a way to make it a lot easier <laughs> to create documentation that, for one, you know that in a lot of projects, the specs are only brought out when there's almost a lawsuit. Contractors don't read through the whole spec unless they need to, or they've never heard of that material or whatever. And you know how specs are, they're very elaborate. And things like sheetrock, the experienced sheetrocker will not read that you need to have screws every six inches, blah, blah, blah. And you know that experienced people don't need that, but you need it because you need to have the backup to point to when things are going wrong. So I don't know if there's an answer to this, but. Oh, there's an answer. I'd love, I love that you just answered that question that way. You have no, I'm just sitting here like, ah, yes. Yes, yes you're, I can't wait. you're the perfect person to, to talk to. There is an answer. And, and I jokingly, no offense to anybody, call it the cycle of abuse in our industry. Nobody gets the education in school. Nobody. It's not because anybody is dumb or not doing things right. Just nobody gets the education in school on the proper way to do contract documents. Mm -hmm. So back before dirt was invented, people had something go wrong on a project and, and started putting CYA language on their drawings or in their specs. It's like, okay, oh, I don't want this to happen again. We have to have this in here. And over the course of decades, and I've been, I've been complaining about this for decades, just throw more and more and more and more crap in our documents, in yeah. our specs and on our drawings. And all of a sudden they're putting, well, we got to put it in both places. Right. There's a couple of easy cornerstone rules of contract documents that solve everything you just said. If people would learn them and understand them, specs don't have to be complicated. But one easy rule, say it once and say it in the right place. Because mm -hmm. I love it when people say to me, contractors won't read the specs. They absolutely will. If you don't put all that language on your drawings, it doesn't belong there. Right. Yeah. They have to. They have no choice. 
that one cornerstone rule alone, if everybody followed it, the say it once and say it in the right place, one set of information in the drawings, different set of information in the specs, and they actually followed that one rule, we would solve probably 85% of the issue you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. There's 15% of other things that we need to do as well. But um, So your final question today, and this is my favorite question, what is your world domination statement? Personal or professional, what mark do you hope to leave on this world? <laughs> you know, I don't have a real world domination, right? I don't really want to dominate. But, okay, you force me. I think that if I can leave the world a little bit better off by talking about sustainability, uh, that would be fine for me. And if I can leave this world where people think I was a decent person, that would be enough for me as well, including my kids and my wife. <laughs> um, That's always a good thing. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, um, I'm not 20 years old and maybe at 20, if you asked me that, I would have said, I want to build the best, biggest building, whatever, and get published in a million places and all that stuff. But can't say I've been there, done that, but I've sort of been enough for me. And, you know, I think if I can nudge the world a little bit from a sustainability perspective, I think I'd be happy. The funny thing is, is there's always an immediate reaction to that question because you talk about world domination, that it must be this big, bold statement. And I think the things that really make the biggest difference in this world are all the little things. Right, right. Those you know little marks you leave on people's lives—they have ripples you'll never get to see. You'll have no idea how far that goes. Right, right. But I, I just love to hear what kinds of things people say. I find out people are a whole lot more, a whole lot deeper and more thoughtful than a lot of general society would probably realize if they just stop and think about it for a minute. It right. doesn't have to be the big, this big, huge statement. I don't think. Wayne, thank you so much for joining me today and talking about this house. It's awesome. And we're going to, you gave me bunches of pictures, so I'm excited. We'll put those. Yeah. We'll, we'll take us. I don't even know. I don't think they'll let me put all of those up, but we'll put those all on the homepage so people can actually, when they go to listen to it, also physically see what we've been talking about. And thank you again. I really appreciate it. Well, nice talking to you, Sharice. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.